Hello, everyone. Thanks for tuning in to Magnify, a podcast dedicated to equipping Christians with biblical truths through the lens of apologetics so that we can magnify Jesus Christ in our daily lives by making him known to the world. I'm your host, Justin Begley, and I'm so grateful that you all decided to join in with us today as we conclude our series, In Defense of Christianity, with our fourth and final question of worldviews, Destiny. If you like this podcast, make sure that you go and hit the subscribe button and leave a five-star review so others can see the podcast and listen too. I remember as a kid, probably four or five or so years old, my mom took my brother and I to New York City to see a Yankees game. Uh, but before the, the game had started, we had a little bit of time to explore the city. And, and so my mom took us over to the downtown area where, you know, we, we saw the 9-11 Memorial, which was just at the time being built. And we eventually made our way up to Times Square and, and Central Park and eventually uh, over to Yankee Stadium. And I remember just kind of being in, in absolute awe of the city. I was just like this four or five year old little boy. And, and I, I was just absolutely in wonder at, at this great giant, massive city in, in my home state. I, I lived on the other side of the state at the time in, in Buffalo. Uh, I was amazed, though, but by the architecture and the, gla- and the huge glass buildings and all, and all the lights and the amount, the amount of people and just the allure and the hustle, bu- hustle and bustle of the city and, and yeah, kind of even uh, the famous New York City charm. I just fell in love with it. But being from the other side of New York, as I said, we eventually had to leave and go back home, and we didn't actually even go to the city again for quite a quite a while. So, I spent the next several years of my life just longing to return to this, uh, to what I thought to be just the best place on earth. I was a five year old kid, and I just thought, "Wow, this is just such a cool and awesome place. I want to be here." I loved New York City, but as I got older, that that desire just to, to return just continued to grow. Um, my memories of the Big Apple were kind of fading, and so um, and so I basically I, I was like, okay, I I, I want to go back here. I don't want to lose my memories of the city. I want to return. Uh, so I actually I did, and I went during my senior year in high school with some friends of mine, and and just fell in love with the city all over again. And when I was uh, in college in Buffalo, I decided that. You know what? Uh, you know it's a relatively quick flight. It's pretty cheap, so I, I want to go uh, once per year to just kind of experience the city at a deeper level, like really get to know it and and kind of become a true New Yorker. And so that's pretty much what I did. I wanted to uh, really. I I didn't want to be anywhere else but New York City. Have any of you felt like that before? That kind of that kind of longing, that desire to be in a particular place, like you just have to go there because you just are standing in wonder at it? Well, I think this is a state that all of us kind of generally find ourselves in. We have this kind of longing and this desire for joy and satisfaction, and we're looking for that one thing that can fulfill it. This is especially the case for believers. We all know that in our lives, we get to actually encounter Christ, and he calls us to him, and and we get to live in fellowship with him. But we live in a broken world where sin runs rampant, and we know that that uh, that when we sin, we which we kind of in- inevitably do, um, we interfere with that fellowship that we have with Christ. We kind of um, disrupt it. But there will be a time, Jesus tells us, that uh, that when we will be made 
holy in the image of Christ, when our sanctification will be made complete, when we will be glorified with Christ, and when and when we will have everlasting life and fellowship, joy, peace, and abundance in the presence of the Lord. You see, as Christians, our destiny lies beyond this place. Our, li- our lives uh, uh, lie beyond even heaven. Our destiny lies in a person, the person of Jesus Christ, who gives us the right, as the Bible says, to become children of God by saving us from our sins, by bearing the weight of our iniquities, which Jesus did for us on the cross. Now, the Bible says that if we confess with our mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, we will be saved into eternal life. And Jesus makes us blameless in the sight of God because God made Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And God is going to make all things new, a new heaven and a new earth, with a new Jerusalem that will descend from heaven where we will live for all eternity in the Lord's presence, reigning under King Jesus. That's our inheritance. That's our hope. That's what I mean by we, that we even have lives beyond heaven because, because everything is going to be made new. And so as we talk about what is called the doctrine of the last things, I, what I kind of want to avoid doing is going into this kind of deep theology uh, lesson on, on, on eschatology. Uh, it's not my plan here, but I do want to hit on some key points that I think most evangelical Christians are in agreement on. And I, what I'm going to do is I'm actually going to borrow a, a bunch of points from Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology book for for your reference in case you want to kind of see what I'm sourcing some of this uh, some of this from. I've learned a lot from this book, and I think it could be a very helpful resource to you as well. Now, the first thing that I want to communicate to you guys is that death is not a punishment from God to Christians because the penalty for, for, for our sin has already been paid for by Christ's atoning, atoning work on the cross. This is why the Christian can confidently declare what Paul said in Romans 8.1, that therefore there is now no condemnation for those of us who are in Christ Jesus. The second thing is that death is a reality of living in a fallen world. And I think we all kind of know this. And this is even the case if, if you're a Christian. But furthermore, it will actually be the last institution to be removed from the fallen world. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 24 and 26, he says, Then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom to God, the Father, after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet, and the last enemy to be destroyed is death. But when Christ returns, death will be swallowed up in victory. You look at later in in 1 Corinthians 15, in verses 54 and 55, Paul says, When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? Now thirdly, God uses the experience of death to complete our sanctification. This is one of the points that that Wayne uh, Grudem points out. Uh, This is why Paul, in his letter to the Philippians, uh, himself sought to be and and encouraged the church to be like Christ, even unto death. Philippians 1.20 says, I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but 
will have sufficient courage so that now as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by death or by life. And later in verse uh, th- uh, verse 3, um, or chapter 3, verse 10, Paul says, I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. So, so that's how God completes our sanctification in death, because we become more like Jesus in our participation in that. Fourthly, our experience in death will complete our union with Christ because through death we imitate what Christ did, as, as, as Paul kind of described there, which allows us to experience him more closely and more intimately. This is why in Romans 8, Paul says that if we share in the sufferings of Christ, we can also share in his glory. And Peter likewise says this. He says in 1 Peter 2 that Christ suffered for us and left us an example to follow. He says this because if we share in his sufferings and become like Jesus, even unto his death, then we can know him more intimately because Christ himself suffered for us so that we could live. And fifthly, as all Christians ought to uh, kind of recognize that our obedience to God in death is more important than preserving our own lives. This is a case example in the... uh, and the disciple Stephen, the kind of the first martyr of the church, who gladly took on death when he, when, when he was stoned uh, by the Jewish authorities. And when he was stoned, he was filled by the Spirit and gazed into heaven, seeing the glory of God and Jesus at his right hand. This is all chronicled in Acts chapter 7. We see that when he was about to die, Stephen cried out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Lord, do not charge them with this sin. Even upon his death, Stephen obeyed God rather than, rather than man. He could have hid his faith. He, he could have stopped preaching the gospel. He could have uh, lived a comfortable life, keeping to himself. He could have appeased the Jews and compromised on his beliefs and, and said, no, you know, uh, you're right. I really shouldn't be talking about this Jesus thing. I should go back to the old Jewish law. Um, he, he, he could have done that. But no, he chose to honor God and not honor man. All of us believers need to do this. We need to, in Paul's, in Paul's words, fight the good fight and finish the race. Keep the faith. We all have to do this. Now, this doesn't necessarily mean that we have to be martyred. Of course not, right? But we should be faithful, yes, even unto our death. This is Jesus' command to the, you, you know, you read Revelation chapter 2, uh, his command to the church at Smyrna. Uh, listen, listen to what he says in verse 10. Be faithful unto death. And I will give you the crown of life. Jesus wants us to be faithful to him, not to this world, but to him. And he's going to reward us for our faithfulness. When we die, we get to be with Christ. So we, we don't have to fear death. This is why Paul says that it's, it's actually better to go home to be with Christ. In Philippians 1 uh, verses 21 to 23, he says, For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to go on living in the body... This will mean fruitful labor to me. But what shall I choose? I don't know. I'm torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. So when we die, we get to actually go and be with Christ. Our souls go immediately into the presence of God at home with the Lord. Do you remember when Jesus was on the cross with the two criminals? One was kind of mocking him, but the other was uh, defending Jesus, actually, and, and saying that, that 
Jesus had done nothing wrong, but it was actually the two criminals that had done something wrong. So they can't, they shouldn't be judging the righteous. And then the, that, that, that criminal that defended Jesus said this to him, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus responded to him, truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. So Jesus is telling this guy that, that he will actually be with him in heaven. So how amazing is that? That that um, that's the amazing thing uh, uh, that believers can look forward to uh, as our time on this planet kind of comes to a, clo- a close. That we will actually get to go home to be with the Lord. But not everyone will get to go be with the Lord, because those who don't believe in the resurrected Christ, Jesus as their Savior, will go to a place of eternal separation from the Lord, a place called hell, where. They will stand. They will. They will stay until the day, the day of ju- uh, of the resurrection, when uh, uh, they will be all, kind of united with their bodies, but um, just like we will. But you know, they'll stand before the Lord and face final judgment. And they'll give an account for the for the life they lived in, and they'll have to um, rely on on quote unquote their their good works, which we all know cannot buy you into heaven. You can't get to to uh, to be. Uh, in, you can't get to eternal life through good works it's by grace through faith, so that no one can boast, to Paul says. This is why Jesus, this is what Jesus says in Matthew uh, 25. After he explains how the, uh, kind of the, he kind of uses the analogy of sheep and lambs, he says that, that the, the sheep and the lambs, namely the, the believers and the unbelievers, will be divided with the sheep, the believers on his right, and the, and the lambs, the unbelievers on his left. And he says in um, verses 41 to 46, then he will say to those on, the, uh, on his left, Depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison and you did not look after me. They also will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes or sick or in prison and did not help you? And he will repro- re- reply, Truly I tell you, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. Then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. Now there are a number of places uh, in, in the Bible that in which this topic is kind of discussed, but I'll just point to one more, just kind of add some extra kind of volition here. In Daniel chapter t- uh, 12, verse verse 2, kind of showing that the, that the Jewish people also believe this, the prophet Daniel speaks to this kind of idea of eternal suffering or punishment or hell as well. He says in, in chapter 12, uh, verse 2 of his, of his book, Many who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to eternal life, and some to disgrace and eternal contempt. Now, I don't want to bring this up because I'm trying to condemn non-Christians. If you're non-Christian, you're listening to this. That's not my, my intention here. Um, actually, this I'm hoping that this that this particular episode will encourage you um, to maybe pursue what, what living life for Jesus looks like. But condemnation isn't my job, or it's not my goal here either. I'm actually saying this to speak to the immediacy of the necessity of believers to be on mission, making sure that every man, woman, and child have repeated opportunities to hear, see, and respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, this is why Jesus gives us the the, the Great Commission, right? To go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. 
We need to be on mission to save lost souls from eternal punishment and separation from God. God doesn't want that anyone uh, should perish, but that all would have eternal life. That's what he desires. And as Christ's ambassadors in this world, our job is to represent Christ in, in the way we act and talk and treat people and, and work and whatever else that it is that, that we do and be a witness for the, transfer, for the transformative power of the Holy Spirit uh, that, that, that occurs when you come to faith in Christ. That is what we have to do. We need to be serious about that mission. Now, it's interesting because, you know, when I was starting to kind of study apologetics, I started originally, um, I think, with not so good of motives. I wanted to be able to kind of articulately defend the Christian faith, but I think at the time I was more interested in winning arguments than winning people. And it, it took just kind of one experience of responding with hostility uh, when I was pressed in an argument to realize that my motives were just really in the wrong place. I realized I'm an ambassador to Christ. I'm an ambassador of Christ for his kingdom in this world. My job is to represent him, not myself. Uh, it's not about me winning arguments. It's about, it's about me winning people for the sake of Christ. Now, I was, t- I was taking you know, 1 Peter 3.15 very seriously, so I thought at least, uh, but I was leaving out the ending of it. You know what it says. It, you know, In your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Uh, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. That's the, the goal of apologetics, right? But the problem is that I stopped at that sentence. That was the, you know, that was the end where I stopped. But, and I kind of ignored uh, the fact that there's one more sentence in, in the verse. Uh, I just kind of disregarded it. After it says, to, uh, be ready to give a defense for your faith, Peter says, but do this with gentleness and respect. Why? Because Jesus was gentle. Because Jesus was respectful. And as his ambassadors, we are, we are we're, we're sent to win people for Christ, to share the gospel. And, and we're to do so with gentleness and respect. We're his ambassadors. We're the ambassadors of his kingdom. Not our kingdom, his kingdom. Now, now returning them to what our hope is, there's, there's even more hope. For Christians than, than what we've just discussed. Jesus is coming again and he will glorify believers by resurrecting them and we reunited reuniting their souls with their bodies, which will be glorified and renewed. First Thessalonians 4 verses 16 to 17 says this, For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God and the dead in Christ will, will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together uh, with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. How amazing is that? We get to go and receive our inheritance, the kingdom of God, and live with Jesus forever and ever. And in the final judgment, which we're going to have to face too, by the way, uh, Christ will not condemn us. He's not going to condemn us because our sins are forgotten in the eyes of the Lord. And, and he will give us, in this final judgment, uh, his blessing and reward. Jesus says this. Let's go back to Matthew 25, a little bit earlier in the verse, in verses 34 and 36. He says, Then the king will say to those on his right, the sheep, the, those believers, Come you who are blessed by my Father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. And I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. 
And then God's going to make all things new. Right? After he does this, he's going to institute an entire new creation. And this is unlike any other religion in existence. The Judeo-Christian faith is the only one where God tells his people that he is going to actually make all things new. A new heaven and a new earth with, with a new great city, the, the new Jerusalem, where the Lord will reign over his people for all eternity. We'll get to be in his presence for all eternity and this beautiful new creation. Listen to what the prophet Isaiah says in Isaiah 65. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come to mind. That, that's pretty great. I mean, a lot of people have tough lives here, right? You know, we're in a broken world. There's suffering, there's pain, there's death, there's mourning. But God says that those things won't come to mind because we're going to be in the joy and the glory of the Lord in his new creation. And the light, actually, will be the glory of God. We don't need a sun, even. The glory of God is going to shine light on everything. And there will be beauty and abundance and joy. Revelation 21, verses 1 to 4 depicts this, right? John, kind of writing down this vision, says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. Talking about the new Jerusalem uh, further, John says in, in verse 23, that the city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, right? So the city doesn't need these, these natural light sources that we have now. For the glory of God gives it light, and the Lamb is its lamp. In chapter 22, verse 3, kind of says further, sorry, kind of dropping a lot of scripture on you, but I think this is really cool. It says, No longer will there be any anything accursed, but the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. So that's what our future looks like. So in the new creation, all things will be, will be made uh, kind of back to how it was when God first made the earth. What, what God said in Genesis, uh, it, it was very good, right? And there will be no more pain and no more suffering, suffering, only abundance of joy, worshiping and reigning under King Jesus. I love what, what Wayne uh, Grudem says in his Systematic Theology book. He says, when we look into the, into the face of our Lord and he looks back at us with infinite love, we will see in him the fulfillment of everything that we know to be good and right and desirable in the universe. In the face of God, we will see the fulfillment of all the longing we have ever had to know perfect love, peace, and joy, and to know truth and justice, holiness and wisdom, goodness and power, and glory and beauty. As we gaze into the face of the Lord, we will know more fully than ever before that in your presence there is fullness of joy at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. This is the amazing hope that Christ gives us. So we need not fear death because we will go home to be with Christ to await the day of our resurrection where we will be given to live, we will be able to live in the new creation with our resurrected bodies in the presence and the joy of the Lord. 
for all eternity. Like, it never ends. That's the hope of the Christian faith. That's our destiny. That's where we're going. But how do we know this to be true? Surely it's this is this just has to be too good to be true. Like, how are we going to live forever? How are we going to live with the God who loves us forever? Like, what evidence do we have for this? That's a reasonable question. It's a question that I've investigated for a long time because I, I, I read Revelation. I'm like, what? Like, this is just... This is just crazy, right? Like, God is actually going to do this? Like, like, how can I be so sure? But I get to, before I kind of get to uh, discussing that, that question, I want to quickly look at just kind of maybe just one competing worldview. Uh, because, you know, the Christian faith isn't the only one that attempts to answer this question, right? A lot of other faith systems that, that try to do it. For the sake of time, we're going to keep it to uh, just one for now, and we're, we're actually going to talk about kind of the atheist or naturalist worldview uh, to see if it if what it believes um, is plausible, if that's an actual plausible answer based on kind of the test of truth that we've that we've worked through in past episodes. Maybe maybe for a future episode we will kind of return back to this and and examine some other other beliefs. But I think this is just a nice a nice one to kind of take a look at real quick and and. Uh, and examine, and it's very common, it's one that you're going to hear a lot. So first off, it's important to point out that modern astrophysics and cosmology actually does point to an end, right? We discussed this two episodes ago in, in our question of meaning. The end of the world uh, could come from a number of different things. Our, our sun could run out of hydrogen and expand into a red giant and, and scorch the earth and everyone on it and make life here inhab- uh, completely uh, impossible because it'd just be, the earth would just be completely inhabitable. Or the Andromeda Galaxy could collide with the Milky Way and destroy all the planets and stars, including the Sun and the Earth, uh, upon its collision. Or uh, the universe could um, could just come to an, e- an end in a thermodynamic heat death where the universe will approach kind of a, an unlivable uh, a cold temperature, a state of what would be called minimum temperature or, and, and maximum entropy, such that uh, the universe would no longer be life permitting. Like nowhere in the universe would it be would, would be life permitting. On another end, there's actually other theories to the end of the universe as well. You know, you have the the big crunch theory and the big rip theory. Um, but whatever, you know, it doesn't really matter. Whatever, whatever the case, science is telling us that uh, that the world actually is going to come to an end eventually. Like like life as we know it is not going to be is not going to continue forever. But interestingly, the Bible actually agrees. Everything I, that I that we just uh, talked about a second ago and, and showed in Scripture, the Bible agrees with this. It says that there's going to be an end at some point, right? Like it, that we don't know the time of when the end is coming, but it is going to end. Just as um, the Bible also agrees with science, and in, in the in the sense that the that the universe actually had a beginning as well. Like science and the Bible are actually in complete alignment here. Don't let people tell you differently because it's just it's just not true. The Bible and science are on alignment here. But naturalists believe that because there is no God and since we're just these kind of insignificant creatures on a speck of di- dust in this vast cosmos as kind of atheists like Lawrence Krauss and Richard Dawkins believe, that they, they believe because there's no God there's and because we're insignificant, there's no life after death. Naturalists believe that all that exists is the, is the physical things, like materials and objects and these kind of physical uh, entities. All that exists is, is, in their worldview, the natural world, right? 
So when we die, that's just kind of it. There's no life. There's no justice. There's no peace. Just nothingness since humans are physical bodies and brains and nothing more and nothing less. They believe that the body and the brain is all there is. We don't have a soul, right? There's, it's just what is the physical. That That's a pretty bleak view, right? It doesn't necessarily mean it's wrong, but it, but it's bleak. I mean, it's, it's completely hopeless. So let's let's examine. Is it is this belief actually correct? Let's let's test the validity of this. Well, first, I think uh, we we can actually structure kind of a, a formal argument for life after death. Actually, the possibility of life after death. And if it is a valid argument, then it just completely defeats the atheist claim that there is no life after death, right? Because if you can argue that there is, uh, that's you know deductively and 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 correctly, then it means that that it's true, right? Now, and I'm going to borrow this from Christian philosopher J.P. Moreland, but the argument goes like this: Premise one: the desire for life after death is a natural desire. Premise two: every natural desire corresponds to some real state of affairs that can fulfill that desire, and therefore. The desire for life after death corresponds to to the real state of life after death that fulfills the desire. So in other words, because we have a desire for life after death, it's kind of a natural thing, and because every natural desire corresponds to some real state of affairs that can fulfill it, it means that that real state of affairs actually exist that can fulfill that natural desire that we have. So if we desire life after death, that means that life after death exists such that it can fulfill our desire for life after death. Are you with me? That was kind of confusing, right? But but um but you know it's 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 it, it's a it's an interesting argument, right? You know it's not it's maybe not great. I mean the, the, the argument holds some merit, but even JP Moreland who kind of formulated it points out that the desire could be learned rather than the natural. Like maybe it's not a universally desired thing that there's life after death. So maybe there are some there are some flaws, but it, it is a good it is a, a well constructed argument. There's a lot of merit to it. Um, but nevertheless, as, as I mentioned uh, when I opened up in the episode, I think that we all do have, in fact, a, a long a, a longing and a, and a desire for something greater, something better that we currently have. That's why so many billions, uh, uh, so so many billionaires, right, that that have kind of the world at their fingertips. They have so much wealth and 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 so much power, and yet so, oftentimes they're some of the emptiest feeling people. Because they can have everything and therefore they have nothing because material wealth ultimately doesn't matter. When you when you die, you just leave it behind So and you can't take it with you. So even those who have everything, I think, still are craving something more. They have this kind of desire for something more. Think of Jeff, of Jeff Bezos, right? He's like the richest man in the world. And his company, uh, Blue Origin, that space company he created uh, that, that just flew off to space, you know, he... He, he's the richest man in the world and he can uh, afford anything he wants and yet he is fascinated with what lies beyond. He's fascinated by exploring the cosmos and reaching uh, what we used to call the final frontier. That's why he launched himself into space just a few weeks ago, right? We all have these desires uh, that, that go beyond what can be satisfied uh, in this world. That's why C.S. Lewis famously said, and I, I quoted this the other day, but I think it's a really, you know, it's, it's great. This is a very famous quote. Everyone loves it, but it's, you know, there's, there's a lot to, 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 to think about here with what he said. He says, if I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation 
is that I was made for another world. Probably earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but only to arouse it, to suggest the real thing. And if that's so, I must take care, on the one hand, never to despise or be unthankful for these, earth, these earthly blessings, uh, and on the other, never to make them for, for, for the something else of which they are only kind of a copy or echo or mirage. I must keep alive in myself the desire for my true country, which I shall not find till after death. I must never let it get snowed under or turned aside. I must make it the main object of my life to press on to that other country and to help others do the same. So I think this argument is actually not quite so bad, but I think we can actually definitely say more. A few episodes ago, we discussed the topic of our meaning and purpose and how the, how the fact that our lives uh, actually do have meaning and purpose, and that points to the existence of not only a God, but a God who creates out of his own desire to love people uh, and, and to make them in his image. And thus, this endows us with immense value and likewise endows us with meaning and purpose. Now, the atheists like Lawrence Krauss and Richard Dawkins says that we're just these insignificant specks of dust on, on a slightly bigger uh, but still small speck of dust in the cosmos. But I think we know that this is just not true because we all know that we do have value. And value implies meaning, and meaning implies that there exists a transcendent meaning from which our meaning is derived. And if there exists such a being, then that being transcends the reality in which we live, and thus it exists independent and possibly outside of the cosmos. And a being that endows meaning on his creation uh, by making it in his image is unlikely to be a being that just lets it that just lets his creation that, that he endowed with so much value and so much purpose and so much meaning, it's unlikely he would just let them die in the heat death of the universe or in the explosion of the sun and not have a future in mind for us, right? That such a being, should he exist, and he does, would just let his creation, whom he loves so much, just die, never to live again, that's just logically inconsistent. So I think that it's uh, that's right to say that naturalism and its view of the end times is just not true, especially when we match up the test of truth and and look at and look at it cumulatively like we did, right? Like naturalism it doesn't make sense that we would just die and that's it. it. Doesn't make sense that our life is insignificant, so there's no life after death because you know who who really cares about us? I don't think that logically holds up. Okay, so on to our last thing now. I, I want to get back to the question I asked before we went into the naturalism talk, uh, talk. The question was, why should we believe that the Christian faith is actually t speaking the truth when it comes to our destiny? Why should we believe there's life after death? Why should we believe that God is going to make all things new? Well, simply because Jesus said so. Yeah, I'm serious. I'm actually being like really serious. Why? Because all of his claims and teachings including that he, in fact, is the Son of God and the Messiah, all of his references to uh, the Old Testament Scripture, kind of validating those and saying that, that the Word of God is absolutely true, that Jesus himself was the Word and the Word was made flesh, that uh, we are to be sanctified by the Word because the, because the Word of God is truth, that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through him. All of the, what he said there, all of his teachings throughout the New Testament, 
were vindicated by God when he rose from the dead after being killed on the cross. But you might be saying, well, okay, well, how how do we know that that Jesus really raised from the dead? Don't you only believe that because the Bible tells you so? Well, yes, I do actually believe that because the Bible tells me so. And that, you know, quite frankly, that should be enough because the Bible is God's infallible and absolutely true word. But God also left us quite a bit of evidence for the resurrection, historical evidence that can be actually verified. I can't go through all the evidence in, in just this one episode, kind of we're kind of nearing the end here. Um, but per- perhaps we'll kind of cover it, uh, cover the body of evidence more in, the, in a future episode. Maybe we'd like to do that. But for now, I, I want to just zero in on, on four historical facts about Jesus that are widely accepted by New Testament scholars today, both Christian and secular scholars. The first historical fact is that after his crucifixion, Jesus was buried by Joseph of Arimathea, a member of the Sanhedrin, that persecuted, you know, the one that persecuted Jesus, in a tomb owned by him. So this is important because it means that the location of the tomb was, was known uh, to people in Jerusalem, both Christian and non-Christian, which means that people could actually come and visit and see if Jesus was really dead you know, after people were going around claiming he wasn't. Now we know this fact to be true because Jesus' burial information was recorded by some of the earliest source documents, including Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, which was written in really as early as five years after Jesus' death and resurrection, as, as well as the Gospel of Mark which also uh, is an independent source from Paul. So we have these really early source documents that attest to this. But furthermore, uh, no other burial story exists. And this story just kind of is really simple, actually, and lacks any uh, signs of being embellished as, as a type of legend. And lastly on this point, uh, since Joseph of Arimathea was a Jewish leader in the, uh, in the Sanhedrin, Early Christian writers would really, they would never make something like this, like this up. They would never make such a figure up uh, since the Sanhedrin is the authority that actually handed Jesus over to the Romans to be condemned to death. So the biblical writers certainly would not have made such, such a character up if it, if it wasn't true, right? The second historical fact is that uh, on the Sunday after the crucifixion, Jesus' tomb was found empty by a group of his women followers. Now again, that Jesus was buried and raised uh, was included in, in Paul's first letter to the Corinthian church. Jesus being raised presupposes an empty tomb. So there are cl- very cl- uh, early uh, source documents for this claim that the tomb was empty. But the empty tomb uh, is also independently attested in Matthew, Mark, and John's go- Gospels, uh, which kind of also lacks signs of legendary embellishment. But the main thing here is that, given the customs of ancient Jewish culture, the testimony of women was not to be taken seriously. It was to be kind of disregarded as unreliable. It's kind of the patriarchal society that, that, that the Jewish people lived in this time. So at the time of the gospel, uh, writers were kind of crafting their accounts. They would have been completely embarrassed to add this detail in, into the text. If it, if it wasn't true, they certainly never would have would have just made up the story of the women discovering the tomb. They would only include this detail if they were true and they wanted to be they wanted to be true in their in their writing accounts. So the two women uh, being the chief witnesses to the empty tomb is most likely a historical fact. Um, if they were just making it up, they would have said that Peter and John uh, found the empty tomb. Not that not that two of uh, Jesus's win- uh, women followers did that. 
And lastly here, when the Jew, when, when the Jews found out that the tomb was empty, you, you'll see this in scripture. Notice that they actually quickly made up a story that the disciples had just come and stolen the body away. They couldn't explain why Jesus' body was missing, so they just made up this lie to spread around Jerusalem, showing that the Jews... Uh, believed that the tomb was empty. They they knew the tomb was empty, and so they were trying to kind of uh, get the people who had heard about this kind of off the tracks, kind of just disregard it. Like, they, oh, they just stole the body. Like, don't worry about it. They're, you know, these guys are going around claiming that, that Jesus resurrected. No, he didn't. He just, they stole the body away, and now they're trying to do all this stuff. No, that is not, that's not true. I mean, the Bible says that, right? That they quickly found the tomb empty, and they made up a story to try to, um, kind of suppress the truth. Fact number three is that on multiple occasions and various circumstances, different individuals and groups saw Jesus alive after his death. Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 uh, verses 3 to 8 says this, For what I received I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also as the one abnormally born. This again is a very early source uh, document of the appearances. As Paul, and as Paul says, uh, there were multiple appearances at different circumstances, including even to 500 people at once. And some of them, which he said, Paul says, there's still witnesses that are alive. Go talk to them. They can tell you that, that Jesus appeared to them. So that's really important. And finally, the fourth fact that we, that we come to that, are, that is widely uh, recognized as historically accurate by, by the majority of uh, Christian scholar, New Testament scholars today, says the fourth fact that, that the original disciples suddenly and sincerely came to believe that Jesus had risen from the dead, despite having every predisposition not to believe so. So for starters, Jesus, their teacher and leader, was dead. They, and Jews at this time had no concept of a dying Messiah. They expected the Messiah to be a, a powerful and, uh, and, and very strong military and political figure that would free the Jewish people from, from their occupiers and from their persecutors, such as Rome, which was going on at the time. And they never expected the Messiah to be killed, much less in such a humiliating way as, as by way of a cross, which kind of showed that, that, that Jesus was kind of being condemned as a sort of criminal, kind of being shamefully executed, which in effect, according to Jewish law, um, Jesus would have been shown to be a heretic, and one who is literally accursed by God. This would have been really embarrassing to the, the apostles. So um, they, they just had no idea of a dying Messiah, and yet they suddenly came to believe in the resurrection. Also, again, looking at this Jewish context that Jesus and the apostles were in, the apostles had no uh, concept of a resurrection either, apart from the general resurrection at the, end of, at the end of the age. So when Jesus appeared to them, it would have been hard for them to believe that Jesus actually rose from the dead. This was completely outside of their Jewish understanding of the resurrection. And yet, they still somehow came to believe that Jesus had, in fact, risen from the dead. And lastly, in, in, uh, on this point, many of the apostles, pretty much all, pretty much all except John, uh, died for their faith in Christ. They were martyred by those who rejected the gospel message. Why would they go to their deaths believing something unless they knew it to be true? 
They certainly didn't make this up for personal gain as the Jewish leaders tried to kind of uh, make it seem, but, but they actually came to believe this. You know, as the saying goes, liars make terrible martyrs, right? They weren't going to die uh, in, in being caught in a lie. Why would they do that? It doesn't even make any sense. So I think it's clear that the apostles, the apostles believed that Jesus actually rose from the dead, despite having every incentive not to believe it, considering how much they were persecuted and killed for that belief. Now, time, as I said, kind of restricts me from going deeper into this into this issue and, and exploring more evidence for the resurrection, but there is more, and I encourage you to read um, certain books. William Lane Craig has one called, I think it's called The, the Sun Also Rises. Um, Gary Habermas is a, is a huge uh, expert on the resurrection. He's a great resource. I would encourage you to go look at those, and maybe we'll cover some of those things in a future episode, but uh, it's it's really important to get a handle on this and recognize that this is a verifiable historical fact. Every naturalistic example, example and attempt to try to explain these beliefs have failed. The hallucination theory, the um, swoon theory, the, the apostle stole a body theory, all those theories have been proven to just be untrue. There's even one that, that says that Jesus had a twin and he was he was the one walking around. Like, there's a, there, people have gone to way more lengths and have put their faith in way more ridiculous things than to just believe in the resurrection. The resurrection, as it turns out, is the best explanation for these four facts and all of the other body of evidence. And so, since Jesus did in fact raise from the dead, we can have the hope that the Bible and the Christian faith says we can have. We know the destiny we have. It depicts it in Revelation and different places in the Old Testament. Paul talks about it in, in his letter to, to, to Thessalonica and the Church of Corinth. It's talked about widely, and we have good reason to believe it to be true because Jesus said that it is, and all of his claims were vindicated via his resurrection. And so we can have hope that one day, just like Jesus, we will also be raised to live in the presence of God for all eternity if we would just believe that Jesus himself was raised from the dead.